0: again. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 9. We're continuing a series in the Gospel of Mark that we did last fall. We've come back to, we started that last Sunday, and we're going to look at the second half of the Gospel of Mark over the next few months. So Mark chapter 9, the end of Mark chapter 9, you saw that from our scripture reading. That's where we'll be this morning. When I was a freshman in college, I arranged my class schedule so that I could have about two and a half hours off in between morning classes and afternoon classes. And that was strategic because I wanted to take a nap in the afternoon. That was important to me. We were staying up way too late. So we needed to make sure we had a good solid two hours to take a nap built into the schedule. And we, my roommate and I figured out a way to black out the windows so that during the daytime we could simulate nighttime. And it was pitch black in our room. So that was when I would take a really deep sleep, is when I would nap. And one afternoon, I remember this vividly, I was taking a hard nap in a deep sleep, and then all of a sudden I woke up and the room was vibrating and rumbling, and I heard this, this glorious music playing, this majestic music, and my heart started beating fast, and I started sweating, and I thought, this is it, like this is what... People have been telling me at church was going to happen my whole life, like this is judgment day. I fully expected that when I walked outside, I was going to see Jesus coming down in the cloud, and, and I was nervous. I mean, I really, you know, my mind is still kind of clearing up a little bit from the sleep, so I'm thinking, I, can it really be like, this is insane, and, and what am I going to see? And it's a little bit frightening. I wasn't afraid that I would go to hell, but there's also that thought of, well, if this is it... And there's no more second chances at this point. So I stumbled out of my bed, and I stumbled towards the door. And the purpose was I was going to open the door, and I was going to see if all the other freshmen were as afraid as I was. And when I opened the door, what I saw was across the hall from me, the guys had bought a really expensive surround sound, and they were playing the FIFA World Cup game on Xbox. And so that was the rumbling in my room, and that was the noise. That was the music that I was hearing was coming from that game. So I walked in the room and I said, Please turn it down. You have no idea how close you guys just came to maybe not making it to heaven. And they're like, What? And then I just <laughs> left the room. But You know, we there's the idea as we read the Bible and we focus on this life and what it means to follow Jesus, but there's also this thought of Someday, either Jesus is going to come back or we're going to have to stand before the judgment seat of God. And so, we think of topics that maybe we like talking about heaven, but we don't like talking about hell as often. So, this morning, our main topic coming from Mark chapter 9 is on hell. And some of you are thinking, why today? I brought a friend today, I brought my neighbor out of all days, why did you choose this day to talk about hell? Because a lot of people cringe when we say we're going to talk about hell. Some people were burned out on it growing up, maybe you were beat up by hell by different preachers or or parents or teachers, and so you've had enough of it and you don't want to hear any more of it, but then there's also another extreme reaction to this topic. And there's some that are like, yes, we need more hell. Keep talking, waiting for a year and a half for you to really dive into hell. So there's these, it's polarizing, right? There's two extreme reactions that I receive when it comes to talking about uh, eternal life, especially when it comes to talking about hell. Now, we all have a certain level of interest in this topic. We've been to funerals. We've had loved ones that have died. Maybe we've come close and had a brush of death ourselves, and so we know that someday life is going to come to an end. We don't live forever, and so the thought maybe has crossed your mind at one point or another, what will happen after I die? Is there life after death? Does everybody just go to heaven, or is there really a hell, because that's what the Bible talks about. So there's a certain level of interest, there has to be, because we know that life is short. And this topic of hell is very controversial. I have spent pretty much day and night this week studying about hell, so it's been a weird week for me when you dive that deeply into a topic like this. It's a tough topic. What I've discovered is that those who believe in the authority of the Bible and believe that there's going to be some sort of afterlife, heaven, or hell, there's really three main responses that are pretty dominant in our world today when it comes to a view of hell. The first one is made popular by a guy named Edward Fudge. Maybe you've heard that name before. Uh, He wrote a book called The Fire That Consumes. And from his party, from his viewpoint, is what's called the conditionalist view. And he believes the fire of hell consumes the person... So that they cease to exist. Or another way of calling this is the annihilation theory. And the belief is that hell isn't eternal. And you say, well, how could that be? The Bible says eternal punishment. Well, they have all sorts of ways of explaining the Greek words and things like that. So this is the conditionalist viewpoint. If you've ever heard of Edward Fudge... Uh, this is what he believes. And they even made a movie about him called Hell and Mr. Fudge. I rented it earlier this week and watched it, and I was trying to keep an open mind to see where he's coming from. I discovered there's a whole podcast with hundreds of episodes, a podcast called Rethinking Hell, and it's all kind of based on this conditionalist viewpoint, the fire of hell that consumes. So that's one view of hell. And then another one is made popular by Rob Bell. If you've heard that name, he wrote a book about six years ago called Love Wins. And the subtitle of this book is A Book About Heaven, Hell, and the Fate of Every Person Who Ever Lived. It's a pretty bold title for a book. Uh, This is the universalist or the fire that purifies. And the belief is That someday all people will come to God, even if it's life after death, the fire of hell purifies and eventually love wins and everybody comes to God. This is that universalist view. So there's a conditionalist view that there is a hell, but it doesn't last forever. There's the universalist that eventually everybody goes to heaven. And then there's what probably a majority of us have understood, and that's the traditionalist view of hell. A rebuttal was written to Rob Bell's book, A book called Erasing Hell, just a few months after Rob Bell wrote his book. It was written by a guy named Francis Chan and another guy named Dr. Preston Sprinkle. It's called Erasing Hell, but the purpose of the book was to respond to this popular thought in our culture today that hell doesn't exist. And so they, it's a great book, I, you know, I read most of it this week, and they start off with a traditional viewpoint, but they're trying to have an open mind, and they're studying all the passages where Jesus talks about hell, Old Testament, New Testament, background on this, and what the Greek words mean. And so this is more the traditional viewpoint that hell is eternal punishment. So whether it's a conditionalist, a universalist, or a traditionalist, there's all these different competing views about what hell is or what happens, and I promise you, there's a lot of controversy that surrounds it. Talking about hell makes me nervous a little bit because I know that there's some of you that have made up your mind on what it is, and if I say something that may interfere with that, you may be really upset with me because this is a sensitive topic. Right? And some of you don't want to talk about it, and so you're upset with me already just for talking about it. <laughs> but I try to follow Jesus and preach Jesus. Nobody talked about hell more than Jesus did. What I want to talk about when we talk about hell is I want to talk about hell not just because Jesus did, but I want to talk about hell the way that Jesus talked about it. Uh, we have 2,000 years of church history. We have movies, we have books that have been written, we have preachers that have preached on it, and whether or not we even realize it, this kind of works in the background of how we view something like hell, and so without even realizing it, we have presuppositions about it. And we do this with all sorts of topics, you know, grace, salvation, baptism, hell, anything it may be, we already kind of have an idea of what we think it means when we come to the text And whether for good or for bad, we sometimes read our presuppositions into the text. So when I look at this topic, what I'm trying to discover is what did Jesus actually say about hell? As you study through Mark, and we're doing this sermon series on Mark, and because Jesus talks about it, and you're doing an exegetical-style sermon series, well, then eventually we're going to have to talk about it. And so Mark has Jesus, his teachings, mentioning hell three times. And all three of those times are right here in Mark chapter 9. And so we're going to look at those this morning. Mark chapter 9, our scripture reading was verse 42 through 50. And thank you, Martin, for reading this morning. Uh, I actually picked that scripture because it fit what we were preaching on. But as Martin was reading it, I was looking at your faces thinking, wow, this is not the most uplifting passage to read during a scripture reading at the beginning of a worship service. So it's kind of there's some tough things in here. There's some strong language that Jesus uses. I want to give a full context of what's going on. So if you just back up just a second to Mark 9, verse 33. You know, last week we talked about these passion predictions. This is the second passion prediction in Mark. And then he's going to move on to some teachings. And the disciples are arguing with each other about which one of them is the greatest. So Jesus finds out about it. He calls them out and says, what are you arguing about? They don't want to tell him. Right, and then Mark chapter nine and verse fifty, the section ends with Jesus saying, "Be at peace with one another." So the section begins with an argument about who's the greatest, and it ends with Jesus saying, "Be at peace." So that's everything. As are the brackets. What's going on in between? You know, there's some commentary on that. So in verse thirty-five, he gives them a paradoxical teaching: whoever wants to be First needs to be last and the servant of all. Then he grabs a child, a little children, and he puts them in his arms, and he says, If you welcome one of these children, you welcome me, and you don't only not only do you welcome me, but you welcome the one who sent me. And then he keeps teaching. And we don't know if there's a if this is a different day or a different time, or if he's still holding that child in his arms as he teaches. A lot of people believe that he's probably, this is all in one setting and he's still holding the children around him. But uh, in the next section in verse 38, John comes up to him and he says, hey, somebody was casting out demons in your name, but he wasn't one of us, so we told him to stop. And then Jesus says, don't stop him. He can't do that and then turn and say something evil in my name. Whoever's not against us is with us. And then The equivalent to that in Matthew is the opposite, but it's basically you can't be neutral. You're either with us or you're not with us. All right. So, what's happening in this first part before we get to our main scripture reading is that the disciples are being very exclusive. They don't want the kids around, they don't want anybody that's not like them around, but Jesus is being inclusive. You know, He's saying, Bring the kids to me. Jesus is saying, Let those who are casting out demons on my name keep doing it. You know, give a cup of cold water to even one of these little ones who believes in me. So that's kind of the context building up to our main passage. And I want to read again verse 42 through verse 50. And as I read it, you know, I kind of have this image in mind of Jesus still holding a child in his arms. And then if I'm a parent, what am I thinking, you know, as Jesus teaches this? So start verse 42. If any one of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. That's a direct quote from Isaiah 66 verse 24. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can you season it? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So again, if if Jesus is holding a child at this point, and you're a parent nearby, and he says, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, it's better to have a millstone tied around your neck and drown in the sea. As a parent, I'm thinking, whoop, like that's not kid-friendly language. And then he starts talking about cutting off your foot or cutting off your hand or gouging out your eye. And at that point, I may be motioning for my kid to cover their ears. Because this really does not sound like kid-friendly language. This is, these are some violent images here. This is what we would call hyperbole or exaggerated language. In verse 42, when he says the little ones, is he referring to the little kids? Or is he referring to anyone who is God's children who believe in him? And then he says uh, it's better to have a millstone tied around your neck and to drown in the sea. Well, we're going to have more on that later in the sermon. But I think he's talking about your example that you're setting for others not being a stumbling block. And then he talks about cutting off limbs. Gouging out an eye rather than go to hell. So the first question that people ask when they read this teaching is, did Jesus mean this literally? A guy named Ed Dobson was preaching one day in Florida to a community of Christians, and he's preaching on this passage, and when the service was over, somebody came up to him who was missing an eye and told him, I took this passage literally. And he actually gouged out his eyes. The first time I've ever heard of a story like that. It's the first time that Ed Dobson had heard of a story like that. And he said the guy told him, the problem is I still struggle with lust with my other eye. So he had done this to himself, taking Jesus' teachings literally, and still had the same struggle. So I don't think Jesus meant for us to take this literally. And if you do, Don't ask me to help you because I don't want to go to jail for assault, okay? We obviously obviously think that there's a deeper meaning behind this. There's no record of early Christians maiming themselves. I think the purpose is Jesus wants us to take sin and the consequences of sin very serious. I think the deeper meaning is the heart. If you're looking at Mark, you could look at Mark chapter 7. Where Jesus is talking with the Pharisees and the problem with sin, Jesus says, is what's going on inside of you. Lust and theft and murder and anger and all those things, that comes from within a person. But I think the point of this teaching is that we need to deal ruthlessly with sin or take sin very serious. And I'll come back to that in just a minute. And then what we're building to is he mentions hell. It's better for you to lose a hand or a foot or an eye than to go to hell with the unquenchable fire. So... What does he mean when he says hell? This is the only time in Mark where it's mentioned. The Greek word for hell is this word Gehenna. All right, This kind of has a dual meaning, so I want to explain this. Gehenna was an actual place. It was the southwest part of Jerusalem. It was the trash dump. So when Jesus said Gehenna, it's better for you to be thrown into Gehenna. Well, one thought might be that's the place right outside of Jerusalem that nobody wants to go to. That's where all the trash is. That's where the trash is constantly burning. But by the time Jesus teaches this, it seemed to have a dual meaning, that it was an actual place outside of Jerusalem, but it was also the place where people go after death, after life on this earth, who have rejected God. The background for this word Gehenna is the the word of the phrase, the Valley of Hinnom, or the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, Valley or G-E in, in Greek, G-E, that is Valley of Hinnom. So Gehenna, Valley of Hinnom. If you look in the Old Testament, you have King Ahaz, a very wicked king, and he uh, was mentioned that he would offer child sacrifices in the Valley of Hinnom. It was a very dark and desolate and dreary and kind of satanic place. And by the time Jesus comes around, it becomes the trash dump. So when he says hell, it's this word Gehenna, but we also think of Other words from both Old and New Testament that make us think of something along the topic of hell and words like Sheol from the Old Testament, used over 65 times in the Old Testament. Uh, It's sometimes translated as the grave or the pit. Um, It's really just like a place where it's a shadowy existence or the underworld. And by the time we get to the New Testament, that word Sheol is, is translated as Hades in Greek. And Hades is probably a word we're a little more familiar with. You can look throughout the New Testament. You look at Luke chapter 16. Jesus tells this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man is in Hades and he's in torment. And then Hades is mentioned again in Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. You can read through the book of Revelation. And he mentions that he holds the keys to death and to Hades. Well, Hades isn't the same word as hell, but we start thinking along those lines, right? We, something like that comes to mind. And then you read other places in the New Testament where Jesus doesn't say hell, but he alludes to it. He uses words like outside, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you flip that next point there, I don't know, it's stuck. He said there will be outside, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, outside where there's darkness in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, he mentions eternal punishment, if you hit the next one, in Matthew chapter 25, the sheep and the goats, and the goats go are on his left, Those whatever you did not do for the least of these, you didn't do for me, and you go to eternal punishment reserved for the devil and his angels. So there's different allusions to this concept of hell or some sort of a punishment, life after death for those who are not with God and uh, we have things like outside or Hades or darkness or eternal punishment or hell. All right, but what Jesus doesn't do in Mark chapter 9 is he doesn't stop and explain. He doesn't stop and say, by the way, for those of you who don't understand what I mean by hell, let me explain it to you. He just assumes That I'm guessing that original Jewish audience that was listening to what he was teaching, they already have some sort of background on what he means by this. So in our day and time, 2,000 years go by, we're separated from this original first century Jewish audience. And how do we understand hell? What do we think of? And again, I've mentioned there's all sorts of teachings and movies and images and shows and things like that that draw certain images to mind when we think of hell. There was a popular book many decades, if you hit that next slide, that came out uh, by C.S. Lewis. I mentioned him last week. The book is called The Great Divorce. It's a fictional book, but it was highly influential, and I had to read it for a class several years ago. And the, the book is this image of people that are in hell, in some sort of eternal separation from God, And they take a bus trip to meet people who are in heaven. And one by one, the people in hell choose to stay in hell because they're clinging to their pride or they're clinging to an unforgiving heart or whatever it may be. And so one by one, they all stay in hell. And the point of this fictional book is I think what C.S. Lewis is trying to draw up is that hell is a choice. We either choose Jesus Or we choose our own will, our own way. And so some have described C.S. Lewis's book as hell is the self-exile of the soul separated from God. We know that that's what hell is, a separation from God. When we have words, if you get that next slide, like hell, you think of condemnation. That's another word that kind of goes along in the same thought process. The problem with that is If you're a person that really likes talking about hell because you like talking about who goes there, then you may have a heart problem yourself. You see, in the Gospels, as Jesus interacts with the Pharisees, Sadducees, chief priests, teachers of the law, they were quick to condemn. And Jesus had a very different approach. So when it comes to hell and who goes to hell, the Bible is very clear that God is the judge on that. Not me and not you. We can point people to what the Bible teaches. We can try to explain it. But in the end, God is the judge, and I leave that up to God. And when it comes to hell or eternal punishment, what does that have to do with evangelism? As we try to share this life-saving message of Jesus and the cross, well, where does the message of hell fit into that? I was on a mission trip many years ago, and I was young, and so I was kind of taking a back seat to the, some of the Bible studies that were going on, and I was listening as one man, we walked into somebody's home, a family, and he wanted to share the gospel with them, and so all he focused on was uh, all these horrible ways that they might possibly die in the next 24 hours, like if, what if your house caught on fire and you burned alive, or what if you're hit by a car, and he's going through all these examples, and he said, would you go to heaven or hell? And this girl said, I guess I'd go to hell. And so that day she was baptized. And all I could think was, I feel like based on what we presented to her, we just scared her. I don't know how else to scare the Gehenna out of her because she was terrified and then she was baptized. But then that has haunted me ever since because I've thought, wait a minute, did we make a disciple of Christ that day or did we just offer somebody a get-out-of-hell-free car?" So if the only reason you follow Jesus is just so you can get that card, then is your heart really in it? Are you really believing in the life and the teachings of Jesus and the kingdom of God that he presented? And of course, afterlife, heaven, or hell is a part of the message, of the gospel message. But the way we live our lives now is important also. If you hit the next slide, it's commonly quoted in my life, is that heaven is where God is and hell is where God is not. And what we know about hell is that there's eternal separation from God. And without trying to get into all the details of what heaven is or what hell is, I can tell you one thing. I desire Christ with my life now, and in eternity I desire to be with God. I don't need to know all the details about mansions and golden streets and all that stuff. What I'm interested in is being where God is for eternity. And I know that hell is separation from God for eternity. If you hit the next slide. Uh, Jesus finishes up this teaching in Mark chapter 9, and he says, everyone will be salted with fire, which is a very interesting way of phrasing that. After he quotes Isaiah 66, verse 24, where the worm never dies and the fire never goes out. And it's interesting because in the context of Isaiah, the bodies were already dead. If you went back and read Isaiah and then he says, salt is good. If salt loses its saltiness, how can you season it? You know, Throughout the Bible, you know, we are the salt of the earth, and salt has many different purposes. And then he ends it with saying, be at peace with one another. And remember, it all started with the disciples arguing with each other. And then Mark continues on with the teachings of Jesus on his way to the cross. And we don't really get any more on the doctrine of hell. So there's a lot of information I've thrown out at you, words, things to think about. And I can't give you every single answer for every question that may come up right now. But what I can focus on is in the context of Mark chapter 9, what what do we learn from this? Like what do we do with, with this, this extreme teaching that Jesus gives us? Where do we move from here? And I could offer you probably two main takeaways. And one of those, the first one is that we don't want to be a stumbling block for someone else. That's Mark nine forty two. Jesus said, It's better for you to drown in the sea than to cause some, one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. And so we take very serious the example that we set. It doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect in all areas and aspects of our life, but the way that we live, the example that we set, we have to take that very serious. So that means the way that we behave, even on social media, the things that we share, the things that we like, the things that we retweet, like all that is a part of our example. When we come to church, but then when we get in the car and the things that we talk about and whether we gossip or we don't gossip around our kids, that's all a part of the example that we're setting. When we go to work, when we go to school, the way we behave, the way we respond, the way we talk... All these things are part of our example, and what we don't want to do is be the reason why somebody else stumbles in their faith. Again, we're not going to be perfect, but we need to take it serious. So one practical thing that maybe you could do this week, if you just took it one week at a time, maybe you could examine your life a little bit and just say, what's one area in my life that I could be a better example in? Whether I'm at home or at work or school or whatever, where's one area that I could try to be a better example in. And then the other takeaway, I think, from Jesus' teaching here, if you hit that next one, is to deal ruthlessly with sin in your own life. I think that's the part of the main point of cutting off a hand, foot, or gouging out an eye. These vivid images that Jesus is using, it's better for that to happen than to go to hell. I think what Jesus is saying is, do the hard work now. What Satan promises is pleasure now. And then the pain comes later. What Jesus offers in following him is self-denial, picking up your cross, following him. The first will be last, last will be first. The way of the cross, suffering now. But the glory comes later. So what Jesus, I think, is really stressing when it comes to sin here is to deal ruthlessly with sin in your own life. To not let it fester and linger, but to whatever it is in your life, and probably you know what that is that you need to cut out or gouge out of your life. So if you were going to take a practical step this week, how could you be a better example? What's one area that you could be a better example in? And then what's one thing that maybe you need to cut out of your life that's causing you to sin? Where Jesus says, deal with that now. Don't put that off and wait. And then maybe wait until it's too late. And as overwhelming as that may be, maybe we could just take small steps. And as we do that, we're getting closer and closer, I think, to the heart of what Jesus is teaching. And as a church, we don't want to just throw a hard message like that out there. We want you to know that we want to help. Like part of our vision, part of what we're doing when we have staff meetings and vision meetings and elders meetings is we're trying to find ways that we can help you mature in Christ and make disciples, and grow, and grow in our families. So we don't want to just leave you high and dry. We're in this together. This has been a very heavy topic for me this week. I'll just admit that. It's kind of haunted me. It's weird to wake up like 4 or 5 in the morning, and you can't sleep because you're thinking about, what did Jesus mean by hell? It's real, that's what happens when you dive this deeply into a passage. So I just feel like at this point, Uh, I feel like it would be appropriate to pray. And I just want to offer a prayer before we conclude this morning. So if you join me in prayer. Lord, as we come before you today, uh, this is, you know, some of these topics that we find as we study through Mark or the deeper we dive into your word, um, it can be complicated. Understanding what you meant, what it means to us today, and, and for the most part, it interferes with maybe some of the comfort that we want to have. Uh, so I pray, Father, for me personally, that you would help me to reflect you and be a better example of the way that I live and to and not take lightly the way of Jesus and what you've taught. And I pray that as a church we can reflect you um, and honor you, even if some of the things that you teach are countercultural to what's going on out there today. I just pray that we can be faithful. And I pray, Father, that you would just kind of show us what to do with these teachings from Jesus today and how to live and how to honor you as a church and as individuals and as a family. Give us humility and thank you for your grace and the forgiveness of sins that we have through the cross of Christ. Father, because we're not perfect, we're still sinners, even though we strive to do your will. I pray that you would help us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, we're going to have shepherds that are around the room right now will have myself up here and another one of our elders. If you need to respond, if you're curious about maybe what will happen after you die, that's always an interesting topic. If you want to talk to somebody about that, we can, we can share a message with you. If you have concerns or prayers or something going on in your life, grab one of our shepherds. You can do that privately. You can go to the back or you can come up front. And We invite you to do that, and let's invite you to stand and sing.